0: Oh my God, I had to start the whole fucking thing over because my microphone was fucked up and I went back to listen to some shit like 10 minutes in and it was all fucked up. And so here it is. This is take two and it's not going to be as good because it's never as good the second time around. I can't remember half the shit I said. I went on some rant about the dinosaurs and global warming and I don't know. Everything was a blur. And then I listened back to uh, try to figure out what the hell I was talking about And when I played it back, not only was what I was saying was incomprehensible, but the sound was awful. And so I just had to restart my program, and I think this sounds better now. Regardless, this extremely professional episode of the QTR podcast is brought to you by my friends over at JM Bullion. I love JM Bullion. They have done over $7 billion in sales over the last 10 years. They are the best when it comes to gold and silver bullion. QTR podcast listeners can reach out to Laura directly, L-A-U-R-A at jmbullion.com. She will help you with anything you need, inventory, questions, pricing. They always turn around my orders quickly. They always ship discreetly. I love JM Bullion. They have great, reasonable prices on their website. They constantly have inventory, even when a lot of other bullion sites do not. And so I'm happy to show some love to JM Bullion. And you should, too, if you like the QTR podcast, though. I can't imagine why you would like the podcast that is not by I can't imagine why you would order gold and silver bullion. Not why you like the podcast. Hey, things are going splendidly already. Huh, folks? This podcast brought to you also by my friends Sang Lutri and Wall Street Jesus, two of the OGs when it comes to tracking market flow. Lucci and Wall Street Jesus are two of my absolute favorites. They have a little community and a piece of software called the Steam Room, where every day they are looking at the market, looking at tape, looking at the psychology behind the options market, and trying to give themselves and their community the edge when it comes to trading. If you're an active trader... I can't imagine that you would not love the steam room. Check out Lucci, his link is in the podcast description. He will give you a free trial, whatever you want. Just tell him I sent you, and that I said you could have whatever you want. And uh, he'll make sure that you get taken care of. Love Lucci, love Wall Street Jesus, an honest guy to do business with. And the nice thing is, like, Lucci's one of those guys where you sign up, you don't like it, he'll just make sure you get canceled or whatever, or you don't want to fucking do it. You don't want to give your credit card right away. I'm sure he'll work with you. He's a good guy. He's been my sponsor for a long time, and, you know, the podcast, not Alcoholics Anonymous. (laughs) But, uh, yeah. I haven't had one complaint. Not one fucking person has ever come back to me about anybody that has sponsored the podcast and said, this guy is shit or that guy is shit and you shouldn't have them on your podcast. And, uh, you know, to be honest with you for all the things that I don't care about when it comes to the podcast, the one thing I do care about is recommending people that I personally know support and know are honest to do business with, because there's so many people out there recommending so much bullshit. And one, uh, One blogger in particular this week was called out for that, though I won't mention names. But I am happy to say that I am am no longer running the largest grift on Substack. (laughs) 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 But uh, somebody got called out for that shit this week. And I was just thinking, like, man, you know, for my little rinky-dink operation, I'm kind of stoked that I only, uh, you know, support people that I know that are honest. uh, And, you know, when a sponsor drops off, I have a short list of people that I reach out to which are people whose products I would use, who I like to talk to, who I have on the podcast, and say, hey, would you be interested in supporting? At which point they say no, and uh, I keep moving on with my day. This podcast also brought to you by my friend George Gammon over at Rebel Capitalist Pro. George, Lynn Alden, Chris McIntosh, and Brent Johnson have teamed up to help you fools understand how to preserve your wealth in a world of out-of-control central banks, George is a libertarian-focused, Austrian-school-focused content creator. He's got incredible channels. Rebel Capitalist is one. George Gammon is the other. He has an incredible Rebel Capitalist Pro live forum. Uh, He does question and answers all day. I mean, the guy produces so much content. He's such an incredible resource. And uh, another generally nice guy that I would be happy to do business with. I know George Gammon semi-personally. I've known him for a few years, since before he even got his start, and uh, he's just a hell of a human being. Somebody that I would listen to when, you know, I'm looking for answers about macro, I tune into his shit, uh, because I don't know what's going on, so I don't know what you're listening to me for. But the point is, uh, George Gammon at Rebel Capitalist Pro, my friend Sangluci and Wall Street Jesus over at the Steam Room, and my kind friends, J.M. Bullion, their link is in the podcast description, the only place that I would want to buy my gold and silver bullion. Please reach out to these sponsors if you're interested. And even if you're not going to buy anything, just tell them you're a listener and you heard their shit on my podcast so that they can continue to support me so that I can continue to eat one thimble full of rice per day in my tiny, tiny, tiny apartment driving my car that is badly in need of a passenger side mirror. Thank you very much. As per usual, this is not investment advice. Please read my full disclaimer on my Substack if you'd like. Uh, That explains everything very clearly. I am not a financial advisor. I hold no licenses, no registrations. There is generally a three drink minimum for this podcast, as he says in office space. You know, Brian has 10 pieces of flair. Some people like to do more. And we encourage that. <laughs> All right, we're going to try to talk about money today because uh, I spent the last podcast ranting for an hour and a half about aliens. And uh, I just emailed Jeremy Riss again today to see if he would like to come on my podcast. And he has not gotten back to me, which has been the uh, modus operandi. So I will continue to pester him. Sometimes that works. I'm trying to think of who I've pestered to come on the podcast. I don't know. Probably like Mick West or somebody that's way more important than I am. But I have pestered people successfully to get them on the podcast. Sometimes that shit doesn't work. I annoyed Eric Weinstein for like two straight weeks. He never got back to me. Actually, it's not that he never got back to me. I don't think I followed up. You know, there's an apathy here with me that uh, makes it difficult to book guests. My friend Phil Bach, who is uh, a very dear, gentle human being, whose opinion I am very interested in hearing on the market's, Uh, I've been giving him about six minutes notice when I want to book him, and so he will be the next guest on the podcast. I told him, Phil, you'll be the next guest. Today there's no guest, so I'm technically not lying, but the way that I try to book Phil is as follows. It'll be about 5.57 a.m. on a Sunday morning. I'll send him a direct message, and I'll say, hey, Phil, I want to come on the podcast. I'm going to do a podcast in eight minutes. And six minutes later, I won't have a response from him at 6.03 a.m. on a Sunday morning. And I'll just think to myself, well, I guess Phil doesn't want to do it. (laughs) Because if I were him, I'd be sitting around waiting for my DMs for me to come through randomly at the worst time possible to invite him on a podcast. But, you know, and he dear Phil keeps trying to schedule things with me. I'm available next Tuesday at two o'clock. Like, Phil, I could be on Neptune by then, you know? I have no idea. I have no no clue what could be going on at that point in my life. So, uh, Phil, we'll get you on soon, man. You will be the next guest, I guarantee. I guarantee you'll be the next other pers- person other than me on the podcast. But today, I'm going to sit here and talk shit for about an hour, so we don't need Phil to do that, although he would be more than welcome to dial in. The main reason I wanted to do a podcast today was I really wanted a forum to... Uh, to get my beef to air my grievances you know the last one we talked about aliens today we'll talk about finances and money uh which i know nothing about but i do know that um the reason that people dislike paying taxes is because they are under the impression that the people who then get that tax money are poor capital allocators And what that means is you send your taxes to a big pool somewhere, and then some guy is responsible for doling it out on projects, services, things that benefit the community. Well, let me explain to you as a Philadelphia taxpayer what I had to endure this morning. I woke up this morning, and there was a tow truck outside of my door towing a car Away, and while the tow truck was doing that, he backed the car he was towing into another car. That second car, the alarm started going off and didn't stop. So I was gonna to try to do a podcast earlier, but I couldn't because the goddamn car alarm was so loud that you couldn't even you couldn't hear anything I was saying. Uh, and then this guy, you know, kind of rips this other car out of this parallel parking spot and drives off of it. and I was just thinking, wow, he just made my Philadelphia experience better. The other problem that I've noticed recently, here's how fucking stupid people are. You know, just take a look around and see where your money is being spent, okay? I'm walking down Market Street the other day, and I noticed that the entire right lane of Market Street, okay? So Market Street is, I think, two lanes on either side, and Market Street runs east-west. It is uh, essentially the uh, the x-axis of the city, and the entire right lane had been painted red, blood red, and uh, they they filled in the entire right lane of Market Street with red paint uh, to designate it as a I guess a bus lane or an h o v lane or whatever. And I'm just thinking like nobody is gonna fucking change what they're doing driving through the city. Because that lane is now painted red. Okay, look, if you're a tourist and you're in town from, you know, Paducah, Kentucky, and you're looking to abide by the rules of the big city because you're not used to being in the big city, and you see that, like, oh, my God, red, bad, stay away. Like, better, honey, better keep it in the left lane. I I can't go there. That's the bus lane. Honey, I can't get around this guy. I've got to abide by the rules. Okay, so maybe there's one guy doing that shit but 99% of people in the city, okay, basically, here's how traffic laws work in the city. You're allowed to do whatever you want anywhere. That's it. I mean, the the rules generally, like, if you go out to the suburbs, the rules are you must stay under the speed limit and drive defensively and drive carefully. And when you're in any city, it's the opposite. New York, Philadelphia, whatever. It is do the bare minimum to abide by, you know, red, green lights, but then pretty much you know, because there's so many lights and so many places to stop and so much traffic, the rule is generally as fast as you can get your car up to in the short space that we've provided, uh, is the speed limit. So if you can go from 9th Street to 8th Street and your car can go from zero and then hit 42 and then go back down to zero again in time to stop for the red light. That's okay. There's no problem with that. And of course, no police are going to pull you over for that in the city because they just don't care. I've seen drunk drivers, literally outside the bar, drunk drivers smash into each other. One guy injured a cab driver some years back. I watched the whole thing. I was sitting at Roosevelt's. Used to be a bar called Roosevelt's at 23rd and Chestnut. And uh, it's some fucking taco stand now. But back in the day, it was Roosevelt's and we would go there after we got done working our bar shift. I was a bartender. Roosevelt's was a special place. There were a couple of great bartenders there named Chris and Chris, believe it or not. Chris Hollywood and uh, Chris Jones, I think. Sorry if I'm shouting you guys out, but fucking great dudes, man. It was like one of my favorite places to hang out. And uh, we would go sit there at like 2 in the morning to like 4 in the morning or whatever. And one night we're out there and this BMW goes flying down Chestnut Street and just fucking slams into this taxi cab. And the guy gets out of the BMW, and he's, like, clearly drunk, and the girl's drunk, and, like, you know, there's a difference between being shaken up from the from the accident and being drunk. They were fucked up. We were outside, and it was, like, clear they were drunk, whatever. The cab driver gets out of the cab, and he's, like, holding his neck, and it's, like, it's a terrible scene. The police show up, and everybody just gets sent home. They tow the BMW. They tow the taxi cab. There was no breathalyzer. There was no field sobriety test. There was no nothing. I think everybody just got into, like, an Uber. And left. Or this may have been before Uber. Everybody got into another cab and left. And I was just thinking like, yeah, well, that's convenient for the guy that just broke the law and broke this other guy's neck. So that's the general, you know, the threshold for the police getting involved is pretty high uh, from what I've noticed in the city. Now, granted, that's because the police have a lot of shit to deal with. They have, you know, shootings and murders and real crime to deal with. So the point is, as it goes back to traffic, it's very unlikely that you're going to get pulled over for running a stop sign or doing 42 in a 25 as long as you can as long as long you can break before the red light. And even if you run the red light, chances are nobody's going to see it unless you're on the boulevard and there's a camera, at which point they will be mailing you an automated fine, which, by the way, has already accrued interest and penalties <laughs> because you didn't pay it on time because it got lost in the mail because your mail delivery person now drives their own car around. You see this one? I love this. Somebody driving around in Nissan Altima with a sticker on the side that says United States Postal Service. That's the state of the Postal Service. By the way, also contributing to my tax rant here, right? Where is our tax money going? Remember when the post office used to drive around in little postal trucks? My dad was a mail carrier. He had a postal truck the whole time. They had old ones, then they got new ones. Then they fucking upped them to like a minivan or whatever. You know, but it was a Postal Service official vehicle. Now, and I don't know if this is just the city or whatever, but you got guys driving around their Jeep Cherokees, guys driving around and like, you know, it's like, uh, it's become like Uber or Airbnb for postal drivers. Like, yeah, we'll give you the sticker and the mail. You got to make sure it gets there. We don't care how you drive or what you drive. And in the city here, they don't wear uniforms. You know, they got their headphones on. They're just wearing a t shirt and flip flops, walking around delivering the mail. I don't know, but. To say that uh, it's not being managed as well as it could be is probably an understatement. Now, back to Market Street. They paint the entire right side of Market Street red, okay? Bus zone. Everybody knows. Can't go here. This is a bus lane. Red means your car won't go there. Red means stop. Stop. And of course, people have taken it very seriously so far. Of course they haven't. Of course they haven't. People are still whipping around buses. They're double parked in the right lane. The point is, nobody gives a shit, okay, that you painted the fucking lane red, all right? If you wanted to allocate tax money to do something to improve traffic in the city, widen the street. Widen the street. Add another lane, you know? But this is a quintessential... Government solution. It provides no additional room for actual cars to get through, but it just does something that costs money and isn't effective at all. So now you have the exact same amount of space, but one of the lanes is painted red. And there's people somewhere, some guy that was responsible for allocating the capital to this project. probably went to his cousin and his uh, you know uh, paving and painting company. That thinks, all right, we fixed the problem. Things on Market Street are exactly the way that they were prior to the lane being painted red. It's the same amount of traffic, the same fucking people going in the same direction, not giving a shit about the fucking laws, you know, whatever. It's the city. You know, it's the goddamn city. Okay, that's how it works in the city. New York City, all right? You want to get from 42nd Street to West 81st Street? Just you. There might as well not even be... Lights okay. The traffic will tell you when you can and cannot move. The police officers directing traffic will tell you when you can and cannot move. And when you're allowed to move, it's pretty much do whatever you got to do to get where you're going as long as you don't kill anybody. So I saw this painting of the street, and it just occurred to me that you know, this is just such a poor use of capital, and another issue that has been an issue for a while, I'm not sure if I've even talked about it on the podcast, is these fucking street signs. Every street in this city has four names, okay? So 18th Street, or like Broad Street, has another little street sign on top of it that says Avenue of the Arts, and now that little sign has another sign on top of that saying, you know, whatever, Frank Smith Avenue. Every street in this city has three, four, five, six street signs. We have to stop. We have to stop with the signs, okay? Sometimes 8th Street is just 8th Street. That's it. End of story. Where do you live? I live on 8th Street. Over in Rittenhouse, there are signs on top of 18th Street that say French Quarter, okay? So you have the 18th Street sign, and then you have these little... Additional signs appended to the street signs. I know they do this shit in your city too or your community. Shit is fucking annoying. Not only is it a waste of money, and not only does it do nothing, but, like, it's getting out of control. Every new administration that comes in is adding another street name to the streets. Pretty soon, we're going to have street signs that start all the way at the sidewalk and go all the way up to the third story of these buildings. It's like, what do you call the street? Well, we could call it 18th Street. We could call it 18th Avenue. We could call it the French Quarter. We could call it johnson street we could call it admiral john smith way we could call it the roots boulevard we could call it quest love avenue we could call it the benjamin franklin parkway part two we can call it the philadelphia eagles memorial you know street everyone's got a got a million different signs we have to stop we're out of control we're hooked on street signs in the city we have to figure out other things to do with money then Add more street signs onto the street signs we already have, okay? So in Rittenhouse, on 18th Street, there is a sign on top of 18th Street that says French Quarter, okay? You you know the French Quarter, New Orleans. Everybody knows the French Quarter in New Orleans. Did you know we had one here in Philadelphia? I had no fucking idea, okay? I've been living here for 20-something years. Nobody has ever, ever, and I have walked and lived all over this city, and I have bartended in this city, and I've talked to a trillion people in this city. No one has ever, ever, not once, in all of the weird, awkward situations I've been in with all these different types of people, nobody's ever said to me, uh, you want to head down to the French Quarter for some drinks? You know why? Because the first thing I would say is, I don't really have time to go to New Orleans right now. (laughs) And they would say, no, not New Orleans, 18th Street. I said to my buddy the other day, why the fuck would they call that the French Quarter? And so we were like brainstorming on it. And I guess it's because on Rittenhouse Square, there's a couple of French restaurants there. There's Rouge and there's Park and several other places I got thrown out of in my 20s for being drunk, disorderly, not having the ability to pay my check and other various reasons that I can't go into right now. But I don't do a lot of whining and dining there anymore. Nor did I ever. But I'm guessing, okay, that that's why... That's why they're calling it the French Quarter, except it's not the fucking French Quarter. It's Rittenhouse Square because there's Rittenhouse Park and it's in the shape of a square. And you got 18th Street and 19th Street and 20th Street and you got fucking Walnut Street and you got Locust Street and you got got Spruce Street. And those are like the borders, right? And that's it. There you go. Rittenhouse Square. Where do you live? Rittenhouse Square. I guarantee you, you pull nine out of 10 Philadelphians and you tell them, we're going for drinks in the French Quarter, and they're all going to say, I've been to New Orleans before, I love it, okay? So we have to stop. We can't just be inventing, na- there has never been anyone in the city, ever, who has ever said to me, let's go to the French Quarter, ever, okay? like, And look, some of the neighborhoods in the city, you know, like the neighborhood on the fucking east side of Broad Street, everybody knows that's the neighborhood They call it the neighborhood some people call it Midtown Village, you could call it whatever you want, you know, we have a million signs, we have a million names for everything, somebody said to me, we're going to Midtown Village, we're going to the neighborhood. we're going to fucking Bella Vista, okay, I know what you're talking about, I know what you're talking about, no one has, you know, even Avenue of the Arts, all right, nobody has ever said that for Broad Street to me, ever, nobody's ever said, oh, taking a trip down to the Avenue of the Arts, I would have been like, what, Broad Street? Yeah, well, why do not you just fucking say that, Jesus Christ, I don't even think anybody's ever said Avenue of the Arts to me, but I think maybe I've heard it once or twice. These people located on the Avenue of the Arts, maybe somebody put it in a copy of the Metro newspaper that they hand out for free somewhere. Nobody has ever said the French Quarter. We don't have a French Quarter in Philadelphia, okay? End of story. There's no French Quarter. There's Headhouse Square. I've been there. That's near me. I know where that is. There's Bella Vista. There's Fishtown. There's fucking... Uh, you know Gray's Ferry, there's West Philly. I know the neighborhoods. I know Fairmount, I know South Philly. I know Moya Mensing, all right. There's little places that have real names that you can call them other than their street names, but nobody has ever said and Meanwhile, there's tourists walking through the city, looking at the signs like ah, oh, French quarter <laughs> I really do feel like I'm in France. And then they go back home to Paducah, Kentucky, and they tell their friends, oh, Philadelphia's got a French Quarter. No, we don't. We don't have a French Quarter. We have two ritzy French restaurants on Rittenhouse Square, which is called Rittenhouse Square, where a bunch of people that if you met them, you would hate them, hang out and eat. And that's it, all right? So there's no French Quarter. Stop buying fucking street signs and stop painting the streets. Stop doing all this arbitrary nonsense that does nothing but takes up energy. You know, it's just like it's like a spending hamster wheel. You're just running and running and running and running. Well, what are you doing? I'm painting a line. 2 years later, we're going to have somebody else, I guarantee you, guarantee you. The next administration that comes in is going to paint over the red lines. Well, the uh, the red line project was not a success, so we are going to this administration prides itself on traffic flow in the city we're gonna paint over the red lines so that we can open up the right lanes to traffic in philadelphia thereby helping traffic move through the city you know just we don't have to fuck with everything just leave some shit okay take the money put it in the rainy day fund or at the very least spend it on the basics you know housing for the homeless trash collection those types of things You know, stop painting things. No more street signs. We can't do any more street signs. I can't. I look at them. Nobody uses them for reference points. Nobody uses them for anything, okay? Take down the French Quarter signs. We do not have a French Quarter in Philadelphia. All right, now, on to, uh, now that my 30-minute introduction about street signs and paint is over, I guess I'll try to talk about the stock market. I don't really know what's going on with the stock market, folks. You know, the fact that people listen to what I have to say about the market is mystifying to me. I thought I made it clear in my Substack disclaimer that I have very little or if any idea of what I'm talking about. I, I I honestly don't. But I guess I could start here by talking about this full self driving thing that happened over the last week, which I've Thoroughly enjoyed watching. For those of you that are not familiar with the setup, let me set it up for you here. Dan O'Dowd, who is a uh, software expert and billionaire, I think, has launched a years-long campaign, I think about a year now, with his group called The Dawn Project against Tesla's full self-driving software, and basically, Dan is alleging that it's dangerous. And every day, you read a new article about how somebody is killed by a Tesla on full self-driving, if not every day, often. I read one of those articles last week. I think I read two of them last week. And there's no doubt that the uh, software has a lot of kinks that it needs to work out, and I personally, think it shouldn't be on the road. And this Dan O'Dowd, who knows more about software than I will know if I live to be 150, said something on CNBC yesterday like it's the worst piece of safety critical software he's ever seen in his life. And so uh, O'Dowd uh, has been going back and forth with Wally Cleaver of Gerber Kawasaki Management, Ross Gerber, uh, on Twitter over the last week about the merits and the the pros and the cons of full self driving, with of course Ross defending Tesla and full self driving vehemently uh, with conjecture and a bunch of you know nonsense, and Dan bringing the cold hard facts to the table. The gist of which is that this thing is too dangerous to be on the road, and that's generally the point. And Ross is trying to make the point that you know it needs to be on the road for it to learn, for it to get better, it has to be out there, and it needs to, uh, it must kill people to get stronger, essentially, you know, it's like the fucking, <laughs> it's like the Terminator, you know, it must kill in order to survive, um, but the two of these guys at some point agreed to do a, uh, a ride-along, you know, like one of these buddy-buddy cop movies, where they both got into a Tesla, and took it for a spin on full self-driving so they equipped this Tesla and this is in my pinned tweets so the video for this is my pinned tweet if you want to watch it they both get into a Tesla and they outfit it with cameras and Ross Gerber turns on full self-driving and they go for a spin together right this is supposed to be the end-all be-all does the thing work or not and sure enough they're driving around and everything's fine and then all of a sudden you know, the thing almost kills him. A truck's backing up and the Tesla doesn't see it. There's a stop sign at an intersection and the Tesla doesn't see it. And Ross has to slam on the brakes. And he says to him, you know, I, I had to slam on the brakes. Uh, otherwise, we were going to run into traffic. And uh, or I had to disengage is what he said several times. And so they put out this video for the whole world to see. And then they go on national television and and Ross actually does a television appearance without Dan, but they did one also together late in the week last week. But Ross basically goes on TV and he's like, well, he's like, it was a perfect ride. I took him out. We had a perfect ride. Okay. Okay. We had a perfect ride with no disengagements and no problems at all. And uh and you see the video, somebody did a mashup of the video of their drive versus the video that Ross. <laughs> of Ross explaining the situation, and he's up there talking to this host of whatever the show is, and he's like, there was no disengagements, and then it cuts to the video of Ross in the car, like, oh, I had to disengage, he's like, it was a perfect ride, nobody honked, and then it cuts to the video of this lady, like, honking at them, because they're about to blow through an intersection, but, uh, you should watch that if you haven't, that's the first order, but I want to get that out of the way, first and foremost, that's my pinned tweet right now, If you haven't seen Ross Gerber on television defending full self-driving and just making things up, I didn't have to disengage, there was no problems, when the video evidence clearly clearly shows the exact opposite, I would strongly encourage um, checking out that video. Now, um, Ross has, unfortunately, or fortunately for him, been right about Tesla as far as the stock price. You know, this has been an instance, not unlike the market itself, where I come on the podcast and proclaim everyone an idiot but myself, and on the other hand, I'm wrong about everything, and the idiots are correct, which means only one of two things, perhaps both things. One is I am, in fact, an idiot, and these people are much smarter than I am. So, Ross, maybe you deserve the Nobel Peace Prize for the coming year, the Fields Medal in mathematics or something like that we can bestow upon you as I, uh, you know, have to put on my safety helmet when I leave the house because I'm not smart enough to maneuver my way down the uh, stairs in my, in my building by myself. Maybe that's the level of intelligence I'm at right now. Um, but the same seems to be holding true for the overall market. Um, you know, what Chris, what would make you think that the market is going to move lower? Oh, I don't know. 5% interest rates after a decade of 0% rates, we've blown the largest bubble in history and now we are going to accelerate rate hikes at the fastest rate possible. And I'm out there and I'm telling people, hey, you know, the market's going to crash. Just watch. The market will crash. It's only a matter of time. It's only a matter of math. Something's going to have to give, right? And what happens? The market goes straight up. Like Friday morning, the market opened and it went straight up. The the NASDAQ is going to be back to like COVID-19 hysteria, euphoria highs again at some point very soon, except the difference is instead of increasing the money supply by 40% like we did in 2022 or 2021, we are now reducing the money supply and rates are at 5%. So, you know, look, a couple of things could be true here. One is maybe there's something I'm not factoring into my super duper analysis, Maybe the plunge protection team's at work. Maybe the market's being manipulated by options. Maybe everybody's anticipating, I don't know, cuts, which, you know, it's, it's not even going to matter. Maybe everybody thinks the Fed's just going to bail out every sector like they did with Silicon Valley Bank. Maybe there's a psychology to the market that I don't understand here. Maybe Sang Lucci could tell me, what am I missing? You know, is it animal spirits? Well, what are animal spirits? Well, they're like the Santa Claus rally. They're a figment of your fucking imagination. They're an excuse. They're a cute little phrase that gives you justification to buy crap at evaluation that is pornographic. That's it. Hey, man, animal spirits made me do it. That's going to be what I say the next time I get thrown out of a bar drunk and disorderly. Hey, man, animal spirits. I don't know what to tell you. Something just told me. Punch the drywall. You know, it was just my animal spirits just coming through sir you're under arrest well you should talk to tom lee because obviously you don't know anything about animal spirits (laughs) i don't know so maybe that's true maybe there's a big thing that i'm missing here or the market is going to be in for one of the rudest awakenings in history and i can't figure out which one it's going to be But you have to think if there is some semblance of fairness to the markets, and I understand that the markets are manipulated, the central banks, the plunge protection team, all these things, right? You have to think if there is 5% of the markets that are authentic, if 5% of the market is operating like a free market, 5%, 95, you know, the the Japan ratio, we'll call it, 95% manipulated by the central bank five percent free market. Even if that's the case, there is going to have to be some type of rude awakening because you just don't hold rates at zero for 10 years, 15 years, and then all of a sudden hike rates to five percent in 18 months and not have the truck crash into the brick wall at some point. To me, it feels like it is an inevitability that We are going to crash and burn at some point, but we are floating along, happy to talk about the jargon and the bullshit and the lies, as I wrote in my uh, uh, portfolio update for this month and said on my last podcast, you know, happy to talk about soft landings and things like that, as though it's a reality, as though, you know, the underpinnings of the market are not shifting uh, significantly. I don't really know what it's going to take. You know, the market seems to be sufficiently convinced that there is going to be hell to pay or there will not be hell to pay with rates being at 5%. So maybe they're just banking on the Fed, bailing everybody out. Like Silicon Valley Bank may have set the table for people to believe, okay, well, you know, look, now we are, uh, we're playing with funny money and we can print as much of it as we want. So there's really nothing to be worried about. You know, we'll take our knocks with inflation and maybe we will see nominal gains but not real gains but you know why would we let something as stupid as that stop us from buying stocks and uh, and that that may very well be the ethos there may be a huge shift in sentiment in the game theory of markets right because look for as long as i've been watching these markets they don't really react to what's going on not in the economy Not in the country, not anywhere. I mean, they just do whatever they want to do. It was like COVID, you know. It took a month or two after COVID became a thing for the markets to react. They just didn't digest it. They didn't want to digest it. They weren't interested in, you know, the market wasn't interested in reacting to the news. And then all of a sudden it caught up to everybody and you have this oh shit moment. And that could also be what happens too. Hey, you know, we're ticking up 1% here, 2% here. You know, the NASDAQ is, the queues are up from like 260 to 370 here. And I don't know, two years since we've been hiking rates. Maybe we'll wake up one morning and they'll just be down 15%. And you'll be like, oh, okay, all that work, you know, and all that nonsense. But the NASDAQ is having its best start to a year ever. Yeah. Well, what happens on December 31st when it goes down 40%? You know, will it still be the best start to a year ever? Yeah, it'll be the best start and the worst finish. You know, I can't help but think that something like that is going to happen. But I've been proven wrong thus far, and I continue to be proven wrong. It's just that the math behind it seems so certain. Right, it's an easy cycle to visualize. Rates go up, people have less money to spend because the cost of their mortgage and credit card debt and those things goes higher. They have less discretionary money to spend, which means that you know earnings eventually go down for companies. Stocks will eventually go down because earnings go down because multiples can get so high. Nobody wants to pay a hundred times earnings for Macy's. OK, even though I'm sure there's some asshole that can fucking go on TV and justify that. Well, you don't understand. We're at, the, we're at the beginning of a hundred year cycle for Macy's. It's a turnaround. You know, I'm sure somebody could fucking make that argument. But, you know, eventually you get to the point where it's like nosebleed. And uh, and reality will have to set in at some point. But I just look as far as timing. Holy shit. I mean, I knew there was going to be a lag. I've been saying there's going to be a lag, but I don't know how long it's going to be. We're probably going on two years now of rate hikes maybe a year and a half 18 months of rate hikes you got to feel like the rubber's going to start to hit the road when it comes to the economy imploding now i have all these little anecdotal pieces of evidence i see what i believe to be more houses hitting the market you know you see a little bit of disinflation happening i know but i don't really know i don't know and 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 probably you know we'll continue to get terrible economic data and then something will happen where the market will continue to rally because the psychology will be that bad news is good news. And so the market will rally and rally and rally on the shit news until all of a sudden it becomes clear that, hey, we're not in a fucking QE environment. We're in a QT environment. And bad news is not good news anymore. Bad news is just bad news. And then the market will crash, probably at the time when the Fed is cutting already or has started to cut. And, you know, I have to blame myself because I was foolish in thinking that the market would react to these rate hikes a lot quicker than it has. And uh, and I've just gotten it dead wrong. Now, lucky for me, there's been names that I've been long. There's been growth names that I like. You know, I've written in my portfolio update. It's on my Substack. That link is in my podcast description um, about some of the names that I like. You know, people that have been following me knew that I loved Palo Alto Networks going into this year. Well, that stock has gone bananas. Why? Because I believe cybersecurity is going to be a huge issue. Why? Because we're de facto at war with China and Russia, and nobody seems to fucking notice because nobody ever mentions it in uh, on CNBC. People are too busy buying stocks. Sorry. What was that? A nuclear bomb went off? All right. Did I mention I'm buying the SPY today? You know, sir, the, uh, the nuclear bomb has gone off in uh, so-and-so county. Ah, great. Apple just hit $3 trillion market cap. That's another thing, too. Apple might be the bellwether. I mean, here's like the best stock in history, right? Has been my favorite for more than a decade. I remember writing about it on Seeking Alpha a long time ago. I wrote an article called like, it's the most fundamentally sound best investment ever in history. You know, I remember there were days before Icon bought him where it was trading at like a PE of eight. You know, I feel like Apple could mark the very end of a aggressive valuation cycle because you have a company here and there's no doubt it's extraordinarily fundamentally sound. It's got more cash than most governments have on their balance sheet. You know, it's extremely credit worthy. It makes must have products that are going to be in demand for a long time to come. It's growing its services business. It still has a significant amount of market share that it can take on when it comes to Mac You know, Apple is a great, 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 wonderful business. But is it worth 40, 50, 60 times earnings? You're starting to look a little frothy. And God forbid, God forbid something happens with Apple. You know, I said to Kabiko the other day on a direct message, I think Tim Cook, you know, the, the passing of the torch at Apple from Tim Cook to the next CEO could be the sign you know, Jobs, you know, did the incredible, right? He did the turnaround, sucked it up, took the investment from Microsoft, flipped that bitch a thousand times into the fucking iMac. Then all of a sudden the stock went from, you know, two to two trillion. He crushed it. He implemented a vision, the creative suite, all the iProducts, iMovie, iTunes, the uh, the all-in-one iMacs. Jobs did an incredible, and the iPhone. Can't forget that. I was working at Apple when they launched the original iPhone, it was unbelievable to see it in person when it first came out and we first had it in the store. It just looked incredible. It looked like the icons were painted on. It just looked so beautiful, you know, but what has the newest piece of innovation been for Apple? Well, you got this new virtual reality thing that's priced at $3,600. I don't know how many of them they're going to sell, but if that fucking thing flops, they are in huge trouble they're in huge trouble because this is really in terms of breaking out of the comfort zone and launching a new product in, in a niche that nobody else is really doing or doing with any type of, uh, success, you know, meta has their Oculus, but nobody cares. Nobody's walking around with those things. If Apple can do with these fucking AR VR sets, what they did with the phone, which is just reinvent, you know, that entire niche and make it a make it a must-have product, essentially. You know, they used to have these things called killer apps, which were apps that were so good you would buy the operating system just so you could run the app. They have to make this a killer product, right? Will you switch part of your ecosystem over to Apple just to own the AR, VR glasses? So maybe they'll crush it. Maybe they'll start a new trend. And, you know, five years from now, we could all be walking around with these fucking goggles on. You know, and it could be like normal, you know, like now everybody's walking around with their headphones on like zombies staring at the sidewalk, you know, not watching where they're going, staring at their phone, can't hear, can't see, still walking around on the street though. Maybe in five years from now, these AR VR goggles, whatever they're called, I forget the name of them, the Apple vision, the Apple vision pro. Is that it? Whatever. That's what it is for the purposes of my podcast. Maybe they will be the next big thing. Maybe everybody'll be fucking walking around, driving with these things on, and it'll be like one big episode of RoboCop everywhere you go. You know, like uh, Austin Powers when he's sitting at the blackjack table and he can see the he can see the dealer's hole card. You know, and he knows it's a six, or he knows he's got him beat. <laughs> that could all be us soon. We're gonna need new casino security soon. And it could be normal. Of course, you see somebody walking around one of those things on now, you're like, what the fuck is wrong with you? You know, some guy got off the elevator in my building and was walking around with those goggles on. I'd be like, hey, Urkel, how you doing? You know, I wouldn't be like, wow, that's a slick, tech-savvy guy. I'd be like, what the fuck is that guy doing? But five years from now, I could be proven to be the idiot uh, again, and uh, and it could be the normal thing. But what I will say is if it flops... It will be a huge bet gone wrong for the company. And that, combined with Tim Cook leaving, could be the turning of the tide at Apple. The, the turning of the tide that we didn't think could ever happen. And uh, it's really been a bellwether for the market this past week with exceeding the $3 trillion market cap was the big story. And it's what drove the NASDAQ higher. It, you know, it hand-held the NASDAQ higher. And uh, Apple was good. The NASDAQ was good. They're all tied to each other. The tail wags the dog. The AAPL is part of the QQQ. You know, the QQQ is made up of AAPL. The Swiss National Bank owns both of them. It's just like they they go hand in hand together. Um, but man, if I'm Tim Cook, I am thinking I need to cash out here. The fucking thing's at all time highs. I got the world's best pay package. I'm launching this new product, which may fail or may sell. You never know. This is a great time for me to leave. My tenure here is over. I took this company to new heights and then all of a sudden, you know, you get the Gil Emilio that comes in, the former Apple CEO. (laughs) We need to make this place more like IBM. You know, you remember the old Apple history lesson, Gil Emilio, and then it was John Scully. And him and Steve Jobs got into the argument, and Steve Jobs eventually got fired. John Scully ran the company into the ground. Steve Jobs went and started Next. Apple took a huge shit. Jobs came back. Apple eventually went and bought Next's operating system. It was called Next Step. That was the precursor to Mac OS X. Beautiful operating. By the way, Next was making some cool-ass shit back in the day. There was Next, and there was BOS. And uh, in that period between, like, Apple System 8... And uh, Mac OS 10, before they went to the Linux uh, kernel or whatever it's called, before they based the operating system on Linux, um, BOS and Next Step were the two cool-ass operating systems. You didn't have access to them. Nobody had a Bbox or a fucking NextCube because they were like six or $7,000 at the time. But you could change your little icons on your Mac to look like them. So Jobs comes back, you know, acquires his old company. Sticks it up John Scully's ass, takes takes the D from Bill Gates, takes the seven percent investment from Microsoft. We're really we're really excited to work with you, Steve. We're really excited to bring Microsoft Word to Mac, and uh, and saves the company in the process. But we may be going through one of those John Scully and Gil Emilio periods at some point soon for Apple because things have just been too great for. T- it's been twenty years of like execution perfection. At Apple, and uh, at some point they will. Uh, well, I don't know. You know, look, there's legacy companies that have been executing forever. Look at Johnson and Johnson; has been around a hundred years. They haven't screwed the pooch too bad. But it feels like things ebb and flow a little bit more in tech. And I would watch Apple, man. Apple, I think, will be the bellwether. And uh, and I think if the market decides to turn first before Apple, Apple could get creamed in a way that most people wouldn't expect. So uh, we'll keep an eye on that. We'll keep it. But I mean, it's it's valued similarly to Microsoft. And when you think about it, Apple, Microsoft, Google, these companies as a collective, they really do pretty much own the tech atmosphere. So until we get some new disruptive players and God only knows when that'll happen, because anybody that's disruptive basically gets acquired. uh, As soon as we get some new disruptive players in tech, maybe something to watch But for now, you know, I just don't know what it's going to take. You know, this is a good time to assess wants and needs, right? Because wants are the things that you want. That's the discretionary spending. And needs, as Kenny Polkari would write in his letter, STPN, stuff that people need, uh, are the things that are non-negotiables. Your toilet paper, things like that. Your Procter & Gamble, your consumer staples, your Johnson & Johnson, those types of things. Those are needs And wants are the discretionary things. And I think tech kind of fits somewhere between the two. You know, you want, you need a phone, but you want the newest iPhone. Well, are you going to get the newest iPhone? I don't know. And so maybe as phones start to drift from, you know, needs to wants a little bit more, and especially, you know, who wants to let this brand new AR, VR headset, who wants to just drop that into their needs column when the price of groceries is up ten percent every year, and uh, discretionary spending is on its way down, so who knows? And who knows if we're going to have disinflation or inflation? I, you know, it's difficult to tell. Prices are starting to come down, at least relative to what the CPI says, but I, I really don't know. I feel like we're at an unprecedented time, and I feel like all I do is get things wrong when I try to predict. And I think there's some safety in owning gold and silver miners, which are like two of my favorites. I continue to buy the GDX and the SIL. We have geopolitical risk. We have China and Taiwan. We have Russia and Ukraine. We have this de-dollarization risk, which some people will tell you is a real risk. Other people will tell you it's nothing. It's probably somewhere in between. But it's really, you don't have to worry about it if you own gold and silver, because those are the things that benefit from any type of volatility. They may dip if the market winds up getting creamed because the paper price of could be an instance where the paper price of gold and silver go down, but dealers are completely out of physical inventory. How many times has that happened? Um, At some point, that paper price is going to have to move up. But I'm happy owning those things. I'm happy owning some dividend stocks that I continue to reinvest in and buy and will as they move lower. I mean, they're moving higher now, which I guess I'm happy about you know, but it belies the fact that my general market prognostication is that things are eventually going to move much lower. I don't know when it's going to happen. It's another summer here of people fucking around and drinking in the Hamptons and nobody really cares about what the market does. So who knows if the math will catch this market off sides at some point and surprise people. I don't know. You know, all I know is usually when these things happen, it's unexpected. And you know that, you know, the COVID news was out there. And then the market crashed a month later. And everybody's looking around at each other. Like who could have seen this coming? I don't know. Only anybody with a face and eyes. Other than that, though, I'm not sure. There were no fish that saw this coming. That's for sure. Um, The situation is always the same, you know, taking the stairs up the elevator down, surprising the market volatility out of nowhere. I mean, the VIX is in like single digits now. Just think about that. We just had like the second or third largest bank collapse in, his, in history. The interest rate is the highest it's been in like two decades. It moved that high, the fastest it's moved there, I don't know, since like the 80s or the 90s. That's coming after 10 or 15 years of easy money policy. The money supply is now shrinking. The Fed is doing QT. QT. China is basically stated its intention to go into Taiwan. Russia is in the middle of a war with Ukraine. There was a, a coup attempt last week. All kinds of things are going to be coming out of left field. We're moving into an election year, 2024, and the VIX is in single digits. Now, I don't know. You can follow my friend Nick Lentz on Twitter. He's been watching the correlation between the VIX and the indices, one moves up, the other moves down, vice versa. I don't know. It just feels a little weird. It feels a little odd. Is somebody smashing the VIX just to make the market go higher, or is the market going higher and then smashing the VIX? Why does the market go higher with the VIX sometimes? Why does it move lower with the VIX sometimes? I feel like the, the market is being manipulated by options, and I've been saying that for a long time, but I feel like You know, options in the indices, the QQQ, the SPY, those things drive the action in the markets. And uh, I think that is going to create a whipsaw effect when things eventually move lower. But until then, it could just be euphoria to the upside. And uh, all I know is we're at this unprecedented area. And look, folks, stop me if you've heard this one before, okay? We're at this unprecedented point in monetary policy history and the VIX is moving into goddamn single digits. Something about that doesn't make sense. You know, <clears throat> what I wrote last week in my portfolio update wasn't, I know what's going to happen. But it was essentially, don't get complacent. And that is still how I feel. You know, I feel like, okay, maybe I'm wrong. Fine. Tell me I'm an idiot. Tell me I've gotten it wrong for the last 12, 18, 24 months or however long I've been talking about markets. I will accept that. That's why you listen to me. Because I get it wrong. And you find me amusing. Okay? Okay. I'm like not here for actual analysis. I'm this guy that just talks shit, right? You find it funny. Hey, let's tune into the podcast and see how much shit he can get wrong today. Fine. But there is something very wrong with the macro setup as it is today. You got this giant central bank Ponzi scheme going worldwide You have a whole coalition of countries trying to break from the West. you got central banks stocking gold. You have numerous major countries on the verge of war. You had a coup attempt in one of the biggest nuclear powers in the world. You have an election coming up in 2024. Our president doesn't know Ukraine from Iraq based on his statements last week. You have 5% interest rates here. And in Europe, rates are rising too, Okay. There is something is going to have to give at some point. I don't know what it is. Maybe it'll be me. Maybe I'll be the thing that gives. Maybe I'll just quit. And I'll be like, all right, I'm not talking anymore. I've gotten everything wrong forever. And I'm going to stop talking. There was no blow off valve. I'm the blow off valve. I'm the market blow off. The market has chewed me up and spit me out. Like all those fucking uh, Wall Street movies, you know, where the young kid comes in out of college. like, Son, this, this, this office will chew you up and spit you out, son. You wouldn't last a day in the fucking orange juice pit, young man. You imagine all these young interns in like the 80s moving into the Chicago Board of Options Exchange or the CME, you know, trading in the cotton pit for the first time. I think you had to clerk first, right? Son, you wouldn't last a day in my shoes, son. Maybe that's me. Maybe I'm the guy that can't cut it and can't hang. And you know what? That's fine because I don't determine my value as a human being Based on whether I can predict what's gonna happen with the world's most manipulated market and the world's most insane market participants. You know? I don't know. It's like chess. You know? I just, I never win. I play a lot, but I don't win a lot. I'm okay with that. I try to learn. You know? <laughs> I enjoy the game. I enjoy watching. I enjoy being a spectator. I enjoy talking to you. I enjoy ranting about the French quarter. The fucking French quarter! We don't have a fucking French Quarter in Philadelphia, all right? If I had the choice between putting up a billboard that says there's no French Quarter or the VIX going to 16 tomorrow, doubling overnight, I would choose the billboard. That's how much I hate the French Quarter signs. Point of the matter is I don't know anything, and uh, that's why my next podcast I'm going to have Phil Bach on. He's much smarter than I am. You know, it's just, again, Phil, last time I had him on was May of 2022. I was looking at the thing, and what did Phil do? He made the case for Kathy Wood. I think it's great that she has an ARC ETF. So people know there is a one stop shop for all of the aggressive NASDAQ names, the innovation names. The market needs people like her. You know, what did I say? Well, Phil, I think you're drunk or wrong or both. And uh, here we are a year later, and Kathy Wood is still rich, and I still live in a studio apartment. So maybe that's my thing. Maybe I'm a contraindicator. Maybe that'll be my role in the markets. Just do the opposite of what I do. Because I've been do- I've been talking shit for ten years now, and I really haven't gotten anything right, with the exception of COVID. But I mean that was so obvious that a first grader with a head injury could have told you that COVID was gonna, you know, have an impact on the markets. I don't know, maybe that maybe I'll hold on to that. Maybe it was my fucking magnum opus, you know? 10 years, they'll be asking me, how did you do it, Chris? I don't know. I went to the same place for lunch I always went to, and I watched the same news channel that they always had on. On the bottom, the number of cases kept getting bigger, so I thought maybe this is a problem. Wow, that's incredible analysis. What made you, uh, what made you go down the path of adding and subtracting? I don't know. You know, I guess it's just in my instinct as a market analyst. It's uh, something special that I learned in my graduate school years. No, I don't know. You know, I'm going to go outside and set fire to my calculator because nothing matters anymore. And uh, at least that fucking car alarm stopped. All right. Well, this was a uh, wonderful use of an hour. Yikes. Uh, But uh, it's been a lovely month. And (laughs) I invited Jeremy Riss back on the podcast today. So we'll see if he says yes. And uh, Phil Bach will be on eventually, too. And there will be actual content coming at some point soon. It's just that today, if you tuned in for anything of value, well, please accept my humble apology. All right, have a great weekend and a wonderful Fourth of July.